Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 199, Robert Hatch's The Passion and Persuasion, Part 2. In this second part of my interview with Mr. Robert Hatch, he gives the substance of his interpretation of the New Testament on Jesus' atoning death. It's a fascinating interview. As with Part 1, I had a few sound problems, although not nearly as many. So for the most part, this sounds good. Again, I apologize for the audio problems in these two episodes, which are my fault. Without further ado then, Robert Hatch, welcome back to the Trinity's Podcast. Thank you. So last week we gave kind of an overview of your understanding of the biblical doctrine of atonement. I would suggest you could call it a rhetorical theory of atonement, since in your view, the main purpose of Jesus' death was to convince everyone, and especially the Jews, that the kingdom is now open to all, so that the Mosaic law has already served its purpose. But in this second part of our conversation, I want to focus in a little bit more on the biblical data, because this is what's driving all these theories that are going in different directions. If you read theological literature, or literature by philosophers even, on atonement, one of the first things that everybody says is that The New Testament has a lot of different metaphors that are applied to Jesus' death, but they're obviously metaphors. They shouldn't be taken literally. And the question is, how do you turn this metaphorical check into real currency? How do you get any kind of literal understanding out of it? I guess you have to understand what those metaphors are doing. So in your book, you go through the New Testament data in some detail, and you focus on payment metaphors. So let's talk about those. What are these metaphors? Why do people think they're important? How do you think they're to be taken? There are three uh, payment metaphors that uh, are actually four, but two of them very closely related uh, that relate to the atonement. The first being redemption, closely related to ransom. And that is something that uh, first century people were very familiar with, the freeing of slaves by paying their master. And it's a metaphor because uh, these aren't literal slaves. In uh, the New Testament, sinners are referred to as slaves of sin. They're referred to as slaves of, of Satan. They're also referred to as slaves of the Mosaic Law. And so those are the three options we have for understanding how the atonement of Christ uh, resulted in redemption for sinners. God either paid sin, he paid Satan, or he paid the Mosaic Law. Well, now, God's paying sin makes no sense. God's right. paying Satan makes no sense. Well, I say it makes no sense. During the first thousand years of Christianity, that was one of the theories of the atonement, that God paid Satan. They thought that Satan had somehow tricked God out of ownership, and so Satan's somehow the legal owner of us. That's why he has to be bought off. That's right. Or maybe he's taken us captive, like in warfare in ancient and medieval times. They grab the captive and then hold him for a million bucks. Right. But that's very strange that God should lose possession of his property. (laughs) And that God would pay off Satan. That's quite a stretch for any kind of uh, biblical theory of the atonement. But 
The idea that God metaphorically paid off the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law is Galatians 3, Galatians 4. Paul makes it very clear that the people of Israel, when they were under the Mosaic Law, became slaves to the Mosaic Law. It's also very clear from the New Testament writer's point of view that the Judaism of the first century, scholars call this Second Temple Judaism because it was the first rebuilding of the temple. It was the second temple that their religious activity revolved around. They had essentially deified the Mosaic Law. They had placed the Mosaic Law in priority over God's promise to Abraham. I quote Francis Watson in the book, who analyzes some uh, intertestamental literature, which had Abraham living in obedience to the Mosaic Law, and that was the source of his righteousness. The Mosaic Law defined the nation of Israel, which was about as nationalistic a country as could be imagined. And, of course, the Pharisees are the epitome of this deification of the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law had become, in effect, their God. And the Mosaic Law, according to the, uh, the New Testament writers, a prime example is uh, Colossians uh, chapter 2, verse 14, which says that God canceled, and this Greek word has the meaning of the note of indebtedness, the legal debt representing the Mosaic Law, uh, nailing it to the cross. The Mosaic Law represented this legal debt, this accounting of the sins of Israel, that was paid off when Jesus died on the cross. So by terminating the Mosaic Law at the cross, God was paying and canceling the legal debt, and thereby freeing the slaves of the Mosaic Law and, of course, being slaves of the law meant being slaves, as according to Paul, meant being slaves of sin, meant being slaves of Satan. So redemption is a metaphorical means of expressing that termination of the Mosaic law that freed God's people from it. Now, propitiation is a second payment metaphor related to the atonement, and that's also a metaphor in that it's the appeasing of a god. People of the first century are very familiar with the sacrifices that were made to appease the gods of the uh, pagan nations and tended to view their own animal sacrifices in the same way as ways of appeasing their god, Yahweh. The appeasing of a god in order to turn aside the god's wrath, a way of paying the gods for their favor. Now, that was the metaphor. Now, that's been literalized as if God the Son paid God the Father to turn aside his wrath so that he could now show mercy to sinners. But the problem with that, and this is the logical theological problem, is that if God is the God who is propitiated, then God must also be the master from whom the slaves are redeemed. Well, we already saw that that makes no sense. God can't be the master of the slaves who paid himself to release the slaves. But if that makes no sense, 
How can it be the case that God is the God who is propitiated by Jesus' death on the cross? If we understand that as a metaphor, and we understand in the same way that the Mosaic law is the master that had to be paid off in order for the slaves to be released, then in the same way, the Mosaic law is the God that has to be propitiated, that has to have its wrath turned aside by the death of Christ on the cross. Now, that makes perfect sense when you think about it, because Paul says in Romans 4, verse 15, law brings wrath. Romans 13, law is the agent of wrath. It's the Mosaic law that condemned transgressions. There's an interesting verse in Hebrews 9 that says, according to the law, there can be no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. This is a legal requirement. Now, this has been interpreted as meaning that God requires the shedding of blood before he can forgive. But that's not what the text says. The text says, under law, it's because God has been identified with his law, as if the law were not just a temporary measure from the time of the beginning of the uh, law through Moses to Israel to the death of Christ on the cross when the law was terminated. Instead of seeing it as a temporary measure, first century Jews saw it as eternal as existing as long as God himself from eternity past to eternity future. And that was one of the dimensions of their having deified the law. So the point is, if God wasn't the master who was paid off to release the slaves, then God can't be the God who was propitiated by the blood of Jesus. In fact, the idea of propitiation is that, again, just a metaphor for God's having terminated the Mosaic Law, which is the Old Covenant. The Mosaic Law is the Old Covenant, which had to be terminated before the New Covenant could begin. And so the propitiation is a metaphorical way, this appeasing of a God, very familiar to Jews and Gentiles of the first century who were very familiar with making sacrifices to gods to propitiate them, to earn their favor. The idea is that the Mosaic law was metaphorically propitiated by the blood of Jesus in that the blood of Jesus satisfied the demand of the Mosaic law for payment. Turn the Mosaic law from wrath from that point on, being favorable towards God's people, because now when we read the Mosaic Law, not just the Ten Commandments, but the Torah Law, which is the first five books of the Bible, they testify to us about the justice, the righteousness of God, the, the covenantal faithfulness of God to his promise to Abraham, to make of Abraham a great nation and to bless all nations through him. So both these payment metaphors, redemption, ransom, on the one hand, propitiation on the other, are just different ways of explaining that God terminated the Mosaic law, ended the old covenant at the cross, and began a new covenant. A new covenant not of letter, which kills, according to Paul, but of spirit, which gives life. That leads to the other payment metaphor 
forgiveness, which we've already talked about, which is in contrast to redemption and propitiation because it's the canceling of an unpaid debt. So you've got redemption and propitiation, which have to do with payment. And then you've got forgiveness, which is the canceling of an unpaid debt. Now, this debt that God canceled is not a debt. He canceled it unpaid in the sense that this is what we could call the moral debt that exists not in the heart of God. The legal counterpart to it is the Mosaic law. But this is the moral debt that exists in the hearts of human beings. When you know that you've offended someone, whether that person is holding that offense against you or not, when you know you've offended someone, you have a sense of moral debt, an internal sense of moral debt. And you have some sense, unless you're a sociopath who has no conscience, and there are those kinds of people around, but if you have a conscience and you have this sense of moral debt, you have this sense that you've got to make up for it. Something, something's got to be done. Whether or not the person being offended is holding that offense against you or not. Now, the way that we grow up, the God that we grow up with, we naturally assume that this God is holding it against us. We assume it consciously. We perceive it unconsciously because that's the God we're raised with. Whether we grow up in Christianity, whether we grow up in Judaism, whether we grow up in Islamic, whatever Western faith, we grow up with that perception of God. And this moral debt that's in our hearts, just like when you know you've offended someone and you have this sense of moral debt, you've wronged this person. If you perceive that this person is holding it against you, you're either going to be fearful of that person fearful of approaching him or her. And if you do, you're going to do it somewhat like the prodigal son did, uh, groveling, uh, assuming that he would have to pay. Or you're going to harden your heart against that person because you're going to justify what you've done. You're going to be alienated from that person, whether that person is holding it against you or not. In other words, the forgiveness that you need to be reconciled to that person may or may not be something that that person needs to do, but it's something in your own heart that has to be relieved, that has to be resolved, that has to be dissolved for your heart to be able to open itself to a reconciliation with that other person. Now, my understanding is that God does not hold sins against sinners. While he is certainly offended by, and who cannot be offended by the kinds of execrable things that human beings can do to each other. It's not that God's not offended. It's not that God's not grieved. It's not that God's not dismayed. It's not that God's not angered. But it's that despite all of that, God, because he's holy, you know, God's holiness doesn't mean that God is unable to tolerate human imperfections. This is the evangelical and kind of the standard understanding of God's holiness, kind of goes hand in hand with this idea of God's justice as demanding payment. God's holiness means he cannot tolerate human imperfection. That's not God's holiness in the Bible. Holiness means differentness, set-apartness. God is different. 
God is different from human beings. We have a very difficult time when we're offended, not holding it against the offender. Until sufficient time has elapsed or until sufficient sorrow has been demonstrated or to whatever degree the offender has to go before we can find ourselves able to give it up and let it go. Well, God's different. God's not like that. That's Psalm 103. That's not even a New Testament innovation. I mean, that God's willing to forgive. He's willing to practically forget our sins. Yeah. That's right. But the point is, if forgiveness is by definition the cancellation of an unpaid debt, there's no debt as far as God is concerned. In other words, the debt is the idea of holding it against the offender. God doesn't do that. God doesn't, as we know from what Paul says about love in 1 Corinthians 13, God doesn't keep record of wrongs. God doesn't keep an accounting of sin. God doesn't hold our sins against us. Certainly, if we don't turn to him, certainly if we don't come to him in faith, if we don't have that change of mind that is translated repentance, that metanoia, that change of mind, that turning from self-seeking to God-seeking, from self-serving to other-serving. We've got to do that. We've got to turn to God in order to have a relationship to him. But the point is that God was never alienated. God was never estranged. The alienation, the estrangement was in the human heart, and the legal debt that corresponds to that was the Mosaic Law. Well, that was terminated at the cross. That's why forgiveness can be proclaimed to all nations. Not one by one you're forgiven when you repent of your sins and ask for forgiveness, then God forgives you. That's not the biblical idea. The biblical idea is that forgiveness is proclaimed to all nations as a result of the death and resurrection of of Jesus. And that forgiveness can be confidently proclaimed to all nations because The Mosaic Law, the Old Covenant, has come to an end, and the New Covenant has begun. And the doors of that New Covenant, that hope of the Kingdom of God, are open to all who turn to God. In other words, God has been forgiving, God has been accepting from the very beginning. That was never an issue. From the very beginning to the very end, that is God by nature. That's the character of God. That's the purpose of God. That's his perfectly loving character. When the Trinity's podcast returns, more on the central metaphors the New Testament writers use to explain what the atoning death of Jesus accomplished. Let me go back to these metaphors because I think this is important. And so there are three payment-related metaphors, redemption, ransom, and debt forgiveness. Well, propitiation. Redemption and ransom are closely related. Propitiation is the other one. Yeah, maybe that's a little bit different than a payment. We'll get to that in a second. But just dealing with these three, what you're saying is it's not 
They're not literal, okay? It's not literal buying back of a slave. It's not literal ransoming a captive. And it's not literal debt forgiveness. So we have to understand what these metaphors are doing. And they pull in different directions because redemption and ransom suggest an actual payoff, whereas debt forgiveness suggests that the pay was just foregone. Like, actually, right. you don't have to pay that off. So you know they can't be literal because you'd be paying it and not paying it if it was literal. Your point is that the appropriateness of these metaphors has to do with the freedom or the release that's the end result of the process, which is, I guess, relationship with God. So it's as if we've been set free, literally gone from slavery to being a citizen. It's as if we've been taken back from a kidnapper and it's as if we've had a giant bill paid off. Is that right? That's why these metaphors are employed? Yes, I think they're metaphors that help us understand the effect of the atonement, right? The captor, to the extent that we should imagine a captor, it would be like the law. Right. That'd be the payee, would be the law. Not God, not the devil, right? not anybody else. But just this, the law had put us in a tough position by maybe you could talk a little bit more about that right paul says the law is given so that sin would increase that's a baffling statement i think to a lot of new testament readers could you comment on that before we go into some of the other metaphors you know i think it's the effect that on uh human nature when you see a um, a sign that says wet paint don't touch you want to touch it you wouldn't want to touch it if there wasn't a sign there that said wet paint don't touch mhm when sin is confronted with law, it produces transgressions in the sense of individual violations of law, but it also has the effect of increasing the motivation to break those laws. You tell me I can't do something, I want to do it all the more. Another interesting um, statement uh, of uh, Paul's is that sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Now, that mm -hmm. also is quite counterintuitive for those who have grown up with the, in the evangelical tradition. Sin is not taken into account where there is no law. That's exactly what I'm saying about God. God does not take sin into account. It doesn't mean he's not aware of it. it. doesn't mean he's not grieved by it, angered by it. But there's no accounting of it. There's no debt. There's no legal debt of sin without law. And of course, that's what the Mosaic Law was. It was a legal debt of sin that demanded payment. So when Jesus paid the debt of sin, he was paying a demand not made by God, but made by the Mosaic Law. And God sent him to do it out of faithfulness to his promise. Because all nations, including the nation of Israel, all nations beginning with the nation of Israel could not be blessed with reconciliation to God, with a hope for life in the kingdom of God, without that legal debt being paid, without the Mosaic law coming to an end, so that the old covenant could give way to the new covenant. Some of the metaphors we haven't talked about yet are really obviously metaphors, but I guess we need to understand why they're being used then. So the prophet John says, Behold, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's being compared to a sin offering, which is a lamb. Um, he's compared to the Passover sacrifice, 
to the scapegoat of the Old Testament where they would put their hands on the head of a goat, the priest would, and then drive him off into the wilderness. Well, you notice all those uh, references, the lamb, the scapegoat, all of the sacrificial references are references to the Mosaic Law. Mm -hmm. And they're all just different ways of expressing that the Mosaic Law demanded payment. The Mosaic Law, the letter kills, according to Paul, because there was no way for the Israelites to justify themselves by means of the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law left them condemned. And so there was no way for them to be redeemed, for them to be reconciled to God, no way for them to, as God's people, to stay in fellowship with God without those sacrifices. And so no way for either the Jews or the Gentiles to be reconciled to God without payment, without the removal of the Mosaic Law. Because even Gentiles... They had to become Jews. They had to be circumcised. They had to obey the Mosaic law in order to become God's people up until the death of Christ. And that would still be the case if the Mosaic law were still in effect. So the death of Jesus and all these metaphors have to do with the way in which the death of Jesus brought the Mosaic law to an end at his death on the cross. So the washing that the blood of a lamb would provide, it's not, it wasn't supposed to be a moral washing exactly. I mean, wasn't it like a ritual purification? All the Old Testament sacrifices and other rituals were ritual purification. Hebrews is great on this. It makes clear that none of these could have provided a, a final cleansing or redemption from sin. None of these could have provided the kind of ongoing and unending fellowship with God that was provided by the atonement of Christ. You know, the Old Testament itself has passages where the sacrifices are required, and then passages in the prophets that say, God never wanted sacrifice. God doesn't value mm -hmm. animals. These were accommodations to a nation that was forever struggling with its neighboring nations and not being exactly like its neighboring nations. The idea of sacrifice, the idea of a violent deity, a violent warrior god who gave victory or defeat to his own nation, these were all beliefs and parts of the religions of the surrounding nations of the ancient Near East. They weren't unique at all to Israel. And God was clearly accommodating himself to their limitations. So this was a language they could understand, this, this sort of method of having a deal with God. This was something that was useful to them. Yeah, it was, it was God meeting them where they were so that he could bring them forward. When the Trinity's podcast returns, more on this idea of Old Testament accommodations and also the purpose of Old Covenant sacrifices.
One thing that bothers me about a lot of atonement theories is they're trying to make moral sense out of this death because on the face of it, it's morally baffling. Like, why does God have to kill an innocent guy to forgive sin? It's it's not how we ordinarily think about forgiveness. So they try to make it make some moral sense in one way or another. But it strikes me that it'd be good if we could make any kind of sense out of the Old Testament sacrifices, because it just strikes us as just animal cruelty now. Like, why would God want all these animals to be slaughtered? You know, granted the priests are eating the meat, but I mean, it's just weird. Like, he, like he's this bloodthirsty character that uh, likes to see a lot of innocent little creatures get snuffed out. I mean, could we say, though, that on your understanding that the purpose of Old Testament sacrifices was also communicative or persuasive? Sure. Yes, absolutely. In fact, uh, the Israelites, because they were ancient Near Eastern peoples who were part of kind of an overarching culture that viewed gods as having to be appeased, propitiated, to turn aside their wrath. And that's just a form of payment. You appease the God by paying the God with various kinds of sacrifices that are supposed to turn aside the God's wrath. This was... uh, Yeah, he enjoys the smell or he likes the food in some sense. Yeah, God allowed the Israelites to make these sacrifices. Now, they're portrayed as commandments, part of the law, but there's no reason to think that this is because God needed those sacrifices, but rather the people needed them. They needed those sacrifices to believe that despite all of their failures to obey the law, they were still in fellowship. They were uh, with God. They were still God's people. This was entirely rhetorical. It's so interesting. If you read Genesis, they just already have this understanding of this is how you approach God. So whenever there's something important happens, they want to worship God. They're like, well, let's go make an animal sacrifice now. Exactly. So it was kind of an existing technology in a sense that they seemingly were permitted to employ both before and after the law. Lots of good scholarship has been done on this uh, and, and understanding how much like the idolatrous nations of the ancient Near East Israel was in terms of its whole orientation toward worship, toward sacrifice, toward warfare. If God is love, then God is not violent. These Old Testament portrayals of God as a violent warrior God, just like all the other gods of all the other nations, these were accommodations to the inability of the Israelites and even their leaders, even Moses and the prophets, their inability to understand God as we know God in Christ. Now, Paul said in 1 Corinthians I've determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, what he was, he was saying there was not that, oh, I'm not going to say anything about the law. I'm not going to say anything about um, Christian service. What he was saying was, everything that I say to you begins and ends with Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, That's not the evangelical way of approaching the reading of the Bible. 
Paul's approach and the New Testament approach is that we begin with Jesus Christ and him crucified, and we understand the Bible from beginning to end in light of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And what that requires us to do then is to have a much more nuanced view of the Old Testament than a fundamentalist could possibly have. And understanding so much of what is contained in the Mosaic Law as accommodations to an ancient Near Eastern people who viewed gods and who viewed nationhood and who viewed life in ways that uh, are ancient. We don't view, well, in many ways we do, I'm afraid, but, but we have a difficult time understanding the accommodations that God would have to make You know, it's even interesting. I don't want to get off the subject, but if I can briefly just uh, point out that even the word that's translated God in the uh, Old Testament, it's the word El, which uh, Mm -hmm. often appears as Elohim, which is a plural term. Yeah. That word was borrowed from the idolatrous nations. In other words, El Mm -hmm. was the name of a Canaanite god. Right. The uh, the Israelites they had the name Yahweh finally that was given to uh, Moses, but in terms of a word for God, all they had was El, and so Yahweh was their El. In other words, just like our you have your El, we have Yahweh. He's our El. You have your Elohim, your gods. Our Elohim is Yahweh. We don't understand, and some great scholarship has been done in um, recent years that has shed a lot of light on this, how similar the Israelites were to their ancient Near Eastern neighboring countries. God had to accommodate himself to them, or they just were not going to be able to understand anything about what he was trying to get them to understand about him. Even their prophets and uh, Moses and and the prophets. You know, when you get a revelation from God, as they did consistently get revelations from God, if you were a a Moses or a prophet, you'd have to interpret that revelation. And they were interpreting the revelations they got from God in terms of their own background, their own orientation, their own culture. If we're going to understand the Old Testament view of God, and you know, The God of love, the God of grace, the God of mercy breaks through in surprising ways in all kinds of prophecies in the Old Testament. But there's also a whole lot there that seems very unlike the God and Father of Jesus Christ. And what we've got to to understand is that for God to get anywhere with that nation so that he could eventually bless all nations through that nation... He had to make some drastic accommodations to them where they were at. There is a trend in Old Testament scholarship of kind of seeing biblical religion in its context and seeing the Israelites as very closely related to their neighbors culturally and even religiously. And um, they bring out how all kinds of terminology and imagery is borrowed. And 
It also makes sense of their constant struggle with idolatry and even worship of uh, other deities in a pantheon. That's when right. she realized how closely related they are to their cousins next door. Going back to this idea of accommodation, I think a lot of Christian readers, if you ask them what's the purpose of Old Testament sacrifices, they would just say, well, those prefigure Jesus. I think that's true. However, that doesn't explain the role that they actually played at the time between God and the people, because those people were not able to foresee a suffering, dying Messiah, who's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. They were just dealing with you know, God at that time, and they had this, again, this background understanding that you deal with God by means of sacrifices. And so, and, and, you know, every nation has a God. This one's our God. Oh, but I guess he's also the universal God, the one true God. Yeah, I think we have to have accommodation in mind. So it's not that God needs innocent animals to get killed, but it's that the Israelites sort of needed this to be able to interact with God as a chosen people at that time. To be able to believe that Yahweh was a God. I mean, all those, you know, pyrotechnics on Mount Sinai at the giving of the law, the blood and fire and billows of smoke and all of that, that's not a reflection of God as he is in Christ. That's an accommodation of God to the Israelites whose whole concept of God's of deities had to do with scary stuff, blood, fire, billows of smoke, sacrifices of animals. And you know, the alternative to understanding these features of the Old Testament as uh, accommodations is to repudiate Paul's uh, statement that he determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We're going to be true to that theological ethic, then we've got to be honest about the fact that there are just lots of things in the Old Testament that don't correspond and can't be reconciled to the God and Father of Jesus, unless we see them as accommodations. Even the Old Covenant, as it was understood at the time, my understanding is if you look at a lot of the particulars, the language the way the covenant gets ratified between God and Abraham, it's understood on the model of like a conquering king and his subjugated people, you know, the people that are now going to be his subjects and are going to, it's a contract, but it's a contract between a superior and an inferior modeled along the lines of a conqueror and the subjugated people. And that made sense. I mean, that was a familiar fact, unfortunately, of life in the ancient Near East. And it's a fundamentally benevolent kind of arrangement, but yet it maybe is not the same way that we would think about it in a different context. So I think there's a lot of fear. There's a fear of going liberal in uh, evangelicalism. Uh, It's almost a reaction against the demythologizers or people that simply don't believe in anything supernatural and who want to... uh, to be something more like a Marcionite who just, well, that's not even the God that we worship. That's like a different God. But you're saying, no, uh, look, there's just got to be accommodation. And this sacrifice, I would call it a, a technology, or it's like a standing arrangement, is one of those. It's got to be one of those because 
it was taken over, like some of the language and some of the imagery, it was taken over from existing religion at the time. You'd be hard-pressed to find religions now that deal a lot in animal sacrifice. It's actually kind of mostly gone away. Maybe some voodoo and some uh, small, tiny pockets of Hindus, some tribal religions. But, I mean, on the whole, the world's religions are not dealing with deities by this means anymore. It's kind of gone. Islam has a yearly sacrifice, I guess. That's the most prominent one I can think of, a a once a year. uh, Or no, it's part of the Hajj, right? Part of the pilgrimage. That's a little bit similar to what you see in the Old Testament. But like Buddhists don't do it. Christians don't do it. Jews don't do it. Most Hindus don't do it. It's almost gone now. Right. And and, uh, of course, uh, you know, for Christianity... We would say that uh, the sacrifice of, of Jesus brought an end to all of that. But as you were saying earlier, to say that, uh, well, the animal sacrifices, the Old Testament prefigured the, uh, the death of Christ on the cross, that begs the question of why were those animal sacrifices offered? Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Was it because God needed the animal sacrifices some, something about his justice and his holiness required them. And in the same sense, something about his justice and holiness required the death of Jesus. Or was God doing it for our sake? Was God doing it because the ancient Israelites needed it? Did Jesus die on the cross because we needed him to? Because we need to see that there is no barrier that stands between us and God, least of all our shortcomings, our, our moral failings, that on God's end, those, those are not a bear. That doesn't mean that our lives don't change when we turn to God, but they change because we turn to God. They change as a result of our turning to God. And this is love, of course. That God does what he does because he loves. This is the meaning of forgiveness that God has been forgiving. God has not held sins against anyone from the very beginning because it's in his nature rather than in his nature to hold sins against human beings. It's in his nature not to. That's an idea that seems would seem outlandish to not only evangelical Christians, but I think uh, most uh, people who've grown up with traditional Christianity. That's just not the God that we have been conditioned to know. And yet it is the God that uh, revealed himself in in, uh, Christ. When the Trinity's podcast returns, I ask Mr. Hatch about atonement and the Christian habit of falling back into law-keeping. Robert, I understand that you're a non-Trinitarian like me. Is that right? Biblical Unitarian? Right. Or do you prefer some other term? 
Well, Unitarian is fine in the sense that it means one God, not three in one. The one God is the Father. Right, right. The reason I bring it up is if the purpose of the passion is persuasion that we really do have a new deal, the old deal has been superseded, there's a better, more universal covenant now, and this is the final sacrifice that's going to sort of put a big exclamation point on the old system. There's still some persuading that needs to go on. There is still quite a lot of interest in law-keeping, and it's in the general Christian community. There are some sort of hobbyist Jews that they're not ethnically Jewish, but they think, well, the law is a really neat thing. Let's, let's dabble in keeping the law. Maybe that's better. But particularly in Unitarian circles, this is sort of something that's constantly plaguing Unitarians because I would say the bulk of us adopt a Pauline view that the law has served its purpose. But then there's always that person that comes around and now insists on the Sabbath or eating kosher foods. Of course, you can never keep the whole law because it's just it's impossible, but... In your view, is this persistence of interest in law-keeping, is this related to traditional atonement theories? In other words, if you're holding a traditional atonement theory like substitutionary atonement, do you think that makes you more likely to get hung up on law-keeping? Yes, I I do think so, because uh, God is, though his wrath has been propitiated, His justice has been satisfied by the blood of Christ. He's still a God of law. He's still a God who demanded payment. There is even premillennial theology that has God restoring the Mosaic law during the thousand-year millennial kingdom and uh, ruling the nations, uh, Jesus ruling the nations. If you worship a God of law, You're going to find some place for law. Your religious faith is going to have some place for law-keeping, either theologically or practically or both. Organized Christianity has, uh, whatever the church, there is some form of law, some Christian spinoff of uh, the Ten Commandments that uh, members have to keep because, of course, in a religious organization, You've got to have laws to keep the organization going. You've got to have leaders called ministers or preachers or priests. So you've got to have some kind of clergy, which uh, Jesus said, of course, there aren't going to be any lording over in the kingdom. There's not going to be any, in my kingdom, there's not going to be any over-under positioning. There's not going to be anybody exercising authority over anybody else. You've got to have that kind of positional authority to keep the organization running. You've got to have laws that members have to observe in order to maintain the organization. And of course, if you're um, particularly evangelistic, then you've got to have laws to not only maintain the organization, but to expand it. Organized uh, Christianity, organized religion in general, is all about law keeping. Of course, because the evangelical doctrine of the atonement keeps the law god in place, let's say it's very difficult to let go of law-keeping as part of one's uh, religious faith. Robert Hatch, thanks for talking with us. Thank you, Dale. been my pleasure. 
This week's thinking music has been the track Molten Snow by Jesse Spillane. In honor of the 200th episode of the Trinity's podcast, there will probably be some changes, some little tweaks in it. So be sure to check out the Facebook group this week where I'm going to ask what you think about a couple of these ideas. See you there. Before we go, I'd like to say my heartfelt thanks to some folks who donated to the Trinity's podcast through PayPal. Thanks go out to Gary in Florida, to Robert in Florida, and to Rashid in Missouri. Thank you, gentlemen. I really appreciate your support. If you'd like to donate to the Trinity's podcast, you can do that through the orange PayPal button that you can find to the right of any blog post at trinities.org. For listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind. <laughs>